0: the songs. You did a great job singing. What's up, everybody? Good to see you. There's some room up here still. Everybody always fights to get on the front row, and now here's your chance. A couple seats up here. A couple right there. Just one? Oh, you were going to let CJ sit today? All right. Well, it's good to see everybody. I hadn't really prepared anything to say, so I feel a little bit put on the spot. It's great to see you. What a God. What a God. It was a little hard to hold it together uh, just there in the beginning. And uh, we have a lot to be thankful for. And uh, a lot of people I'd like to recognize this whole thing, but I'm not going to. Just because it would take too much time and we would overlook somebody because everybody has uh, been a part and, and put their whole heart into this. And so we're thankful to see it come to fruition. Sullivan Christian Church, thank you for opening your doors to us. This is... No matter what anybody says, this is, this is an, an unprecedented move of God. Uh, we're not trying to make history, but I think God is making history in our community. I believe in years to come, we'll look back on this time and, uh, and really see in hindsight all that the Lord was, was doing and all the lives that would be impacted and changed and, uh, in just the short course of time that we've been together as a church family since two thousand and seventeen, um, God has continually um, exceeded every expectation and to be honest i didn 't have a plan when we started a church i didn 't really I had pastored before i 'd started a couple churches before, but didn 't really know what I was doing, um, and still don 't and i 'd like to keep it that way because it seems like the less I know the Lord, the more the Lord pours in and so we 're thankful. For this time, this opportunity, and I'm just going to preach, otherwise I'll get all emotional and nobody needs to see that. So go to Romans chapter number 16 with me, please. You thought you heard the end of it. <laughs> you have not. So as I, as I prayed and prepared for this Sunday, um, I think, frankly, I could probably preach just about anything. It would be okay today. Uh, everybody's all jazzed up and excited and lot, lots of reasons for that. But um, I concluded last last week in in our our last day together in our old building, uh, which our old building, if you haven't been there, would almost the whole thing would almost fit in this room. I think I don't know what the square footage in in the in this room is, but it'd be real close. Um, probably just this section of the building, uh, all of our our building would fit into. And uh, but but I said to you last Sunday because we we've, we've been in a series this year in the Book of Romans that we we sort of titled creating a gospel-centric culture. That's been the desire from day one is that we create a space where people who have been beat up and kicked around and have made mistakes and have colossally screwed their lives up could find a church home and feel welcome and not only feel welcome, but as we put on the wall in the back foyer, uh, feel wanted. We, We don't just welcome you here, we want you here. Uh, Because we recognize who we are and we understand that it's only by the grace of God that we are where we are and uh, and where we are, we ain't there yet. We're still a we're still a work in progress. And we understand that. And so none of us have any reason to look down our noses at anyone else. Uh, and we thank God that he's created that space. So I, I kind of shifted the, the title of the series a couple weeks ago, and we started calling it Maintaining a Gospel-Centric Culture, because I think God has given us that. I, I think if, if, you have, uh, if you're one of the newer ones to the church, which everybody's fairly new, right? Nobody's been here 10 years, Right? But if you're, if you're one of the newer ones, um, I, I, I've heard this over and over, and I believe it to be true that, that you, you walked in, and, and no matter where you came from, some of you had to overcome mounds of anxiety just to walk through the doors of a church, but you found it to be a very welcoming place, a very open place, where you, you didn't experience uh, judgment, you didn't experience any sort of elitism, um, even though in a small town, we all pretty much know each other's skeletons, don't we? All <laughs> right. And uh, I mean, y'all don't know mine, but whatever. Um, but but the reality is, there there needs to be a place where people can go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. Uh, where you can see people are all the same. Everybody knows your name, but anyway, so Norm, whatever. Y'all used to watch that show. But, you know, I, found, I always found it kind of sad that that wasn't how church is, that a person could walk into a bar and feel more welcome or walk into a gym or some other place and, and feel a more warm welcome than they, than they feel in a church. You shouldn't have to walk in a church and feel uh, eyeballs cutting in your direction and, and people looking down at you because they know what you've done. This is a place where we've all experienced the mercy and grace of Christ, and we understand that. We realize that we're not here because we're any better than anybody else. I can certainly say that. It's all by the grace of God. So today, I just felt like it was fitting on our first Sunday together, officially as a church body, uh, to just continue this thought of maintaining a gospel-centric culture because that's who we are and that's what we want to remain being. Amen? So without further ado, look with me in Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse number 17. I'm going to skip all the names in the early part of the chapter. Rufus. Philologus in verse 15? Whatever. I can't say all those names. But let's look in verse 17. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. So doctrine just means teaching. And in the book of Romans, we have been thoroughly taught. If you've been in the study or if you've ever read through the book of Romans, we have been thoroughly taught that uh, we, we are who we are by God's grace. That's the essence of the book. In chapters 1 through 3, the, uh, the Cliff Notes version is that there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not one person in this room that's not a sinner. See, that was a, that was a slow pitch. You should have been able to hit that. There's not one person in the room that's not a sinner. We're all sinners. We're all broken. We're all messed up in some way, shape, or form. And if you don't realize that, then this message is for you because everybody is broken. Everybody has issues. No matter how we look on the outside, everybody has problems in their private life. And that's the essence of Romans chapters 1 through 3. In chapter 4, uh, Paul goes back and explains that even in the Old Testament, patriarchs like Abraham, David, Moses were saved by the grace of God. We often compartmentalize the Bible and we think in the Old Testament they were saved by the law. They were not saved by the law in the Old Testament. They were saved by grace in the Old Testament. We look in hindsight at what Jesus did on the cross. They looked ahead with what what limited understanding they had to the promise that one day God himself would become a lamb for the sacrifice to take away the sins of the world so whatever faith they had and whatever level of understanding they had they put that faith and that trust in God and so Paul says in Romans chapter number four that Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness David believed God and he was justified by that faith that he put in Christ and then Paul said even I myself who Paul was a a Pharisee of the Pharisees he was a very strict Jew he adhered tightly to the jewish religion but paul said of himself he said i had to come to the point that of that i recognized that it's not all my works it's not all the good that i do it's not my religious motions it's the fact that i'm a lost broken sinner in need of a savior and so we're justified by faith in jesus christ and so when paul says mark those who cause divisions contrary to the doctrine which you've learned and avoid them he says you have to take notice of people who are divisive because the truth is in christ we are supposed to be one we're supposed to recognize the fact that it's by grace through faith. There are no big eyes and little U's. Nobody's getting a trophy. All glory goes to Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, mark those who go against that teaching, go against that doctrine. Verse 18, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly or their own desires, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Can I just say to you real quick that there are some things I don't want to understand? If you're psychoanalytical like I am, sometimes I try to figure people out. Anybody else do that? it's it's something about me. I just have to understand why people act the way they do. But Paul said, you know, you need to be wise concerning what is good and simple concerning evil. He said, really just don't even get down on that level and and don't try to understand it because you don't need to know that. Just focus on the good. Amen? Amen. A lot of good to focus on. In verse 20, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, Sopater, my countrymen greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. I'm not going to make fun of his name. Gaius, not going to make fun of that one either. My host and the host of the whole church greet you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Cordus, a brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures, made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. That's a big mouthful right there. The fact is, it's all about Jesus. That's how Paul concludes the book of Romans. It's all about Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Father, let's, or let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to gather together in this place. Thank you for every piece that had to come together for this to happen. Thank you for working in our hearts. Father, thank you for the leaders that, that, that were sensitive to your spirit. Lord, to let your spirit take control. Jesus, we want you to be Lord of everything. And so we surrender to you, Father. We submit our hearts to you. We pray that you'd work in this place today. I pray that you'd give us wisdom. Father, help me to say the right thing. I pray that, Lord, you would speak truth to our hearts. And, Lord, where my words fail, I pray that your spirit would articulate exactly what each and every person needs to hear. Some came to spectate, but, Father, some have come today because their life and their hearts have been shattered. And so we pray that you'd minister healing to them. Lord, I pray that this would be more than just another church service. I pray that this would be a time of salvation, a time of redemption, a time of healing for hurting hearts, broken homes, broken lives, and we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I got to thinking, I wonder what the church would look like if Jesus were the pastor. You ever think about that? Jesus started the church. First time you find the word church mentions in Matthew chapter 16, verse number 18, where Jesus said upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And from that moment, there's this continuous theme in the New Testament throughout the writings of Paul and Simon Peter and other apostles that God used to pen his words that Christ is the head of the church, that he's the savior of the body, that he should be the centerpiece of all that we do. So so the fact is, Jesus really should be the pastor. In, in a way, he is. If, if we put him in his rightful place as the Lord, as the king, as our shepherd, then, then Jesus is the head of the church. The word pastor just is a, another word. It's a synonym for the word shepherd that we just don't use that much in our modern vernacular. But, but, but as I thought about that, just that, that notion, that concept of what would church look like if Jesus where the pastor, I couldn't help but think of a very familiar passage that most of you probably know, Psalm chapter number 23. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Y'all didn't get it. <laughs> you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You're my friends, so I get that. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So very simple thought, really. If Jesus were, were in fact the head of of every church or each church. If we just sort of bring it down to a microcosm rather than trying to think in global terms, if we think in in more micro terms, just this particular local church. If Jesus were in fact the shepherd, the leader, the head of this local church, there'd be provision. It says that he leads me in in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Right? It means he's providing for us, he's feeding us, he's giving us what we need. It says that 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 even though we are in the presence of enemies, he gives us comfort, he restores our soul, there'd be restoration. There'd be power because everywhere we go, he said his goodness and his mercy would follow us. If we were really walking in the presence of Christ, if Jesus really were the shepherd of your life and my life and collectively our lives as a church body, then then effectively we would be being led and, and being provided for and being restored, which is actually what should happen when you come to church on Sunday, Right? We've said this often that the church is, is not brick and mortar. It's not the four walls of a building, but the church uh, is, it, is made up of the people. And so everywhere we go on a daily basis, we should be walking with Christ. But then when we come back together on Sunday and, and some of y'all that come on Wednesday, we should be having our souls refreshed, our minds restored. We're hitting the reset button and getting our tanks refilled to go back out and do what we're supposed to do for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what would happen in, in a nutshell if Jesus were the shepherd, if Jesus were the pastor of a church, I want to vote him in today, by the way. And then I wondered, I got to thinking about this, I wonder what the church would look like if every, every person in the church had a heart to be like Jesus. If, if every single person, and, and I know this is idealistic, and I preached against idealistic thinking last, last week, but let me be idealistic for a moment. What if every person in the church genuinely, without pretense, without putting on some superficial, you know, spiritual, holier-than-thou facade, I'm talking about genuine grassroots level, organic desire... To be like Jesus, to to adopt and adapt to and let his heart transform your heart, as Paul said in the book of Philippians over and over, that we should let the mind of Christ be in us, that his mind, his thoughts, the way he views life and the world and people, if we would allow Christ to change the way that we think and shift the paradigm of our thoughts and our perceptions, it would really change effectively the way that we treat people, so what would happen if, if, if in a church you had a group of people who genuinely had a heart to be like Jesus? Now think about this. In the, in the broad landscape of the, of the scriptures, the church is known as the body of Christ. Meaning that, that from the most eye-catching aspects of the church to, to the most obscure or the most unseen elements or parts, everybody in the body plays a vital role within the construct of our faith community. Right? We're about to go into a a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. I don't know when, but sometime. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, namely chapter number 12, Paul explains how every single member, which (laughs) we'll talk more about this later, but every single member of the church, a church member is not somebody that got their name on a roll. It's not about having your name on a ledger. According to the Bible, if we do want to have a revolution back to scriptures, being a church member is not having your name written down in a ledger or entered into some software. Being a church member is being a functional part of an organism known as the body of Christ. It's not just an organization. The church is an actual organism. It's living, it's breathing, it's alive, and it's composed of people like you and me. And so when we think about the construct of our faith system, our faith community, we understand that even the word community, com, means come together, and unity means obviously that, we come together in unity. So within our faith community, how would we look as a church body if every person within the body, again, I know this is idealistic, but let me dream for just a moment. What if everybody in the body had an inherent drive and desire and a passion? Not to be perfect, not to be better than anybody, but just to genuinely love Jesus. And while we love Jesus, you can't love Jesus without loving people. Because his word says, how can you love a God that's invisible whom you've not seen if you cannot love your brother and your sister whom you have seen? So what would happen? Now, think about this. Paul mentions here in Romans chapter 16. I, I didn't read the names again because a lot of them are hard to pronounce, and I sound like a hick half the time I try to talk anyway, much less try to say names like Sosipater. Uh, it's not even the right pronunciation, but whatever. Here's the point <laughs> Paul mentions people here in Romans 16 who, who were not otherwise mentioned. Anywhere in Scripture, and most of these folks that Paul names in Romans chapter 16 were never mentioned again. They weren't apostles, they weren't prophets, they weren't pastors, they weren't teachers. They were, however, servants of the Lord who understood what their service and secret would, would one day turn into. That as a whole, when we each do our part, when we each come together and we serve together and we recognize that we are better together than we are separated... Right? Too many churches got their theology from the offspring. You got to keep them separated. Y'all remember that song? Jeez Louise, where are my 90s folks at? But when we come together in unity and we understand that even though your part may seem like a small part, not every position or function within a church community is going to be as prominent or as visible but Paul names these people who understood that they may not get a pat on the back and they may not see their names in lights and they may not ever receive an earthly reward for their labor but they understood that we are a kingdom, we are a body and everybody within the body is vital to the body and as Paul said once again reciting from Romans chapter number, or 1 Corinthians chapter number 12 rather he said the I can't say to the ear, I don't need you. The hand can't say to the nasty old foot, I don't need you. Amen? Now the only people we may judge around here are people with a foot fetish. That is kind of sick and we are judgmental towards you just in case you know. need to know that. That's weird. We'll call it out. But whatever. He says the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. You can't, say, you can't look at one piece of the puzzle and say that piece is unimportant. Every person within the body is a vital part of the body's function. And so, 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 so let me just say a couple things, okay? I, I, I lied a minute ago. I did prepare some things to say. But, and first of all, I want to say that, that you're never going to find a perfect church because the church is made up of people, and there are no perfect people. Therefore, it's impossible to have a perfect church. It can't happen you'll never find a perfect church. But what we can have, however, is a church that is gospel centered. We can have a church that that understands that that we are to be inspired, and not only inspired, but defined by the grace of God. So if, if we were to put in just synoptic terms what we are about, who we are, We would have to say, I think perhaps even our theme verse would have to be 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 10, where Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. We'll talk more about the second part of that verse later. But Paul recognized the fact, a man as mighty as the Apostle Paul. Think about the fact that 2,000 years later, the two most prominent names in the church, first would be Jesus, rightly so. But the second most prominent name in church history is the Apostle Paul. And a man as great and as educated and knowledgeable and well-versed and diverse in his ability to, to, to segue into cultures that were different than the culture that he grew up in, a man as great as the Apostle Paul, his own confession was that he, he said, I am what I am. Everything you see in me, anything that's good is there because of God's grace, not because of Paul, not because of my religion, not because of my adherence to the law or my ability to follow traditions. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. So what is God's grace? What does it look like? What does it mean to be defined by grace? Well, grace is a word that's actually very simple to define. It simply means unearned favor. If someone were to give you something that you did not deserve, if someone were to gift you with something that you didn't work for, you did not pay for, that's a gift of grace. Amen? It's a gift of grace. It's kind of funny with Christmas coming up, we teach our kids, you better be good if you want to get something good for Christmas, don't we? Watch out, because Santa Claus is watching you. That's exactly right, Alfred. Don't ever mistake that. Santa Claus is watching, boys and girls. But we, 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 teach, we teach children from a young age that in order to receive something good, you have to be good. Now, I'm not giving parenting advice, obviously, this morning. But the truth is, if it's, if it's actually a gift, they don't have to do anything to get it. If they're working for it, and this isn't a sermon about Christmas. Y'all understand what I'm saying, right? right. But if, if they're working for it, it's no, it's no longer a gift, it's a wage, You go to work, you punch a clock or however you get paid, and you earn a wage for your labor or your skill set or your ability to think and process and make decisions. Whatever you do, you work to receive your your paycheck, right? That's the opposite of grace. Grace is receiving something for nothing. Grace is receiving good instead of bad. In, 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 In theological terms, grace is receiving God's forgiveness when what we deserve is God's judgment. And so when we read things like Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God and not of works, lest anyone should boast. We understand that grace is very simply defined as receiving good in place of really judgment. Right? Again, that's a slow pitch, guys. You can keep up, right? And so so hear me out. When we talk about maintaining a gospel-centric culture, we have to recognize that grace is the gospel. I'm going to stand here and pause like this so you can nod your head or something. Grace is the gospel. Grace is the gospel. When we, if it's not grace, it's not the gospel. Right? You got to get that. So if you add anything to grace, if we're talking about what it means to be saved or as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. When we talk about being born again or saved and you add something to that message, it's no longer the gospel because the gospel is the grace of God. Grace is the gospel. The gospel is grace. It's unmerited favor. Now look at what Paul said in Galatians 1 verses 6 and 7. He said to this church, and I'm not going to take the time to preach it, actually. Pastor John just taught through Galatians, I believe. But in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul said, I marvel. He said, I'm stunned. I'm baffled by the fact that you're turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ. Now, notice the statement, into to a different gospel. Do you see that? He said, I'm blown away, I'm, I'm amazed, I'm astonished by this idea, this notion, this report that I've received, that you're so quickly turning away to, to another gospel. Well, what is another gospel? Well, he said, it's, it's really not another. Now, that sounds a bit confusing, but if you understand terminology and, and the definition of certain terms, then you understand that the word gospel, if we're, if we're defining things, the word gospel means good news. Doesn't it? Gospel means good news. So Paul said if somebody's preaching something other than the grace of God, that's not good news. Why? Because none of us have the ability, we do not possess the capability. To enter into the presence of God, to enter in ultimately to God's heaven without God showing us his unmerited favor, his unearned favor, and shedding his grace abroad in our hearts. The gospel is grace, and grace is the gospel. They're inseparable. And he said, "It's, it's, it's unfathomable to me that you would be so quickly, so soon removed from the message of the gospel that you would fail to recognize that if you are saved, in fact, you are saved by the grace of God. No one is going to be slapping high fives on the streets of gold talking about all that they did to get there. When we get to heaven, in fact, if you'll read Revelation chapter number four, and I know everybody's very interested in Revelation right now. Amen. (laughs) Rightly so. Watch these date setters though, because they just said Jesus was coming back in September. And if that's true, we're all in trouble. We missed it, boys. <laughs> but don't, don't listen to anybody that's ever setting dates and all this stuff. Stop, 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 stop. But here's what we do know. In Revelation chapter four, when we get to heaven, the first thing we're going to see is a throne, and one seated on the throne, whose eyes burn with passion, whose feet have walked through the fire, whose heart beats with grace and we're going to fall down at the foot of his throne and we're going to sing a song if you don't like repetitious songs you better cancel your ticket because when we get to heaven we're going to sing a song over and over and over and over it goes a little something like this you might start practicing now worthy is the lamb that was slain worthy is the lamb that was slain because Jesus is the only reason we will be there And so we're going to worship him for all eternity. In fact, let me just say it to you this way. If we're defining terminologies, I want you to know that grace is a person. And that person's name is Jesus. (laughs) If you ever want to know what grace looks like, look at Jesus. If you ever want to know what mercy looks like, look at Jesus. If you ever want to know what love looks like, look at Jesus. Greater love has no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. Grace is a person, and he's the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords, and he's the Lamb of God that came to take away our sin. And he is the very definition of grace itself. I love so much about Jesus. That should be a moot statement. But I love so much about Jesus, mostly I, one thing I, I admire and love and try to implicate is that Jesus went to the people that the religious crowd rejected, the people who didn't want those people in their church. Jesus said, I want you. Mm-hmm. See, we're so concerned with, with trying to change people's political policies and views That we fail to recognize that the only true change that will ever come to a person's life is when their heart is transformed by the grace of God. I'm not trying to get you to vote a certain way this morning. I'm trying to get you to put your faith in the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords who loves you more than you could even imagine. Grace is a person. The only people, Jesus, was a little, I don't know, seemed to get a little agitated if you read the Gospels. The only people that Jesus really ever got aggravated and a little salty with were the religious people. It's true. Now, we love you if you came here from another church. We thank God for you. Tate told me years ago, Tate and Kelsey came from a similar background that I come from, religiously speaking. They they weren't in all the stuff I was in before I got saved. But as far as in my adult Christian life, uh, come from a very similar background. And Tate said to me one time, he goes, hey, man, can you kind of take it easy on us old Pharisees too? (laughs) I tend to be a little harsh with religious people. But here's, here's the fact of the matter. If you're here today because you want to worship Jesus and you want to be a part of something that is, that is emphatically trying to reach the heart of a community, then you're welcome here. If you came here because you think it's going to give you some kind of status, you are in the wrong place, Hoss. If you came here because you think, yeah, I'm going to just drop that. We'll pick that up later. Grace is personified in Jesus Christ. I would even say Jesus is grace. He he loved the ones whose lives had been defined by scandal. You read read the Gospels. Jesus Jesus repudiated the traditions of men and rejoiced in the presence of the broken. He did. Jesus rejected so much the traditions of men that they called him a glutton and a wine-bibber. Isn't that crazy? I'm telling you, religious people will always find something to criticize. If they found something to criticize Jesus over, I guarantee they'll find something in you. And they called Jesus a drunk and said he, he was a fatso. That's what a glutton is. He eats too much. Right? I mean, that's what we'd call it in our modern vernacular. They called Jesus, they said he overate and he drank too much. Of course, for you Baptists, he turned the water into Welch's grape juice. I know. I get it. But because of, because of such miracles, turning water into wine. You understand the very first miracle Jesus ever performed was he turned it up at a party. The reception was dying out. They said, we're out of wine. He said, watch this. Now we understand all things in moderation, say Amen right there, because I get accused of promoting alcohol i 'm not promoting alcohol, although Budweiser did offer to uh, sponsor me, but uh, anyway it 's a joke it 's a joke. <laughs> Maybe natural light i don 't know, but the point being, if if we want to understand grace, we have to look to Jesus Christ. Jesus is grace personified, He is the person of grace. Grace is a person, I want to say to you, number two, grace is powerful. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away, behold, all things become new. Here's the fear. People say, well, you preach grace all the time. You preach grace. People are just going to live like hell thinking they're going to heaven. Well, if that's the way you think, then you've never had an encounter with the grace of God. Because when you have an encounter with the grace of God, your heart is transformed by the power of God. Paul said in Romans chapter 6 verse 1, we've already covered this, but Paul said, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. How should we that are dead to sin live any longer? therein? Why would I want to go back to the nonsense, the mess, the brokenness, the wreckage that Jesus delivered me from? Why would I want to go back to it? My heart's been so inherently affected by the mercy and the grace of God. I recognize that he saved me from a cesspool and he set my feet on a solid rock and he put a new song in my mouth and established all my ways and my goings. I don't want to turn back because God's been so much better to me than anything I ever found in a bottle or a pill or or a bong or whatever. Jesus has been so much better. I couldn't think of any other drug instrument off the top of my head. Jesus has been so much better to me than anything I ever found in the world. And his grace has transformed me and, and morphed my life from the ruin and the rubble that I used to be. And I'm still pretty jacked up, still. But Christ has been so good. I want to walk with him, I want to be in his presence. It's the most exciting. It's the greatest life that you could ever live. I'm telling you, living in the brokenness of this world left me empty and hurt and lost and alone. But ever since I put my faith in Jesus, I've never walked alone. His grace is powerful. Since we're on this whole line of using the same letter in this sermon outline, let me also say to you that His grace is persistent. I love the story. I think it's one of the most beautiful illustrations in the Bible, found in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. And people have tried to use and twist that that illustration, that that story that Jesus gave in all sorts of different ways. But let me tell you the essence. Any parable, by the way, if you ever study the parables of Jesus, any parable always has one fundamental truth that's being conveyed, okay? It's an illustration. It's a window into truth. And here's the truth that's being conveyed in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son got it in his heart and in his head that he knew better than daddy. That he can make a better life for himself, that he didn't need to be in dad's house, he didn't need this relationship anymore, and he walked away, and he took all that the father had given him as an inheritance, and he wasted it, he blew his money, he drank it away, he snorted it away, did whatever they do back then. In fact, the Bible says he wasted it on prostitutes and wild, lascivious lifestyles, and he found himself empty and broken, sitting in a hog pen. Now, I've I've been in bad shape. I've slept in my car, I've had to couch surf throughout my life at different times, but I've never sat in hog slop. This kid found himself sitting in a hog pen and he was so desperate that he, 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 he started to, to eat the, the food that, were, that was fed to the swine. And just before he put that, 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 that putrid nastiness to his lips, something in his heart clicked and he said to himself, why am I sitting here in this mess when my father's servants are treated better than I'm being treated? And so he devised a plan. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He sort of thought in the, the, the scriptures say he came to himself. He had this, this moment where he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back home and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to plead with my, my father. I'm going to ask my dad to just, just hire me as a servant. I understand I forfeited the right to be called a son. I have given up my inheritance. I've wasted everything. My life's a wreck. I'm terribly just just wretched and broken, and I I smell like where I've been, and I bear all the marks and the scars and the filth of the life that I've lived. I've made my own bed. I'm going to sleep in it, but I'm going to go home, and I'm going to ask my dad if he'll just give me a job. And on the journey toward home, I don't know exactly what their neighborhood looked like. But the Bible tells us this, it says that as that son who had rebelled and rejected all the wholesomeness of his father's house, as he journeyed toward home, it tells us that the father saw him, the language in the scripture is a a far off or a great way off, that means he was looking. He was longing for his son to come home. And it says that when he saw him afar off, he ran to him. And he fell on his neck. And again, we, we, don't, we didn't get the cinematic version of this, but we read in the scriptures this, this language that illustrates that the father fell on the son's neck. And it says that he, that he began to kiss him and he held him. And I imagine that boy's heart being shattered, wondering if his dad would reject him and drive him away from the home, his home. In that moment, he recognized that he'd been running from his father's love all along. And when he got home, daddy put his arms around him. And the Bible says he told his servants to get a robe and wrap him up, to put a ring on his finger, to clean him up, and to kill the fatted calf For the prodigal son had come home. Now, here's the beauty of the story. You ready? We're talking about how grace is persistent. In the Old Testament, under the law, a rebellious child really had merited, had earned punishment, the punishment of death, execution style. In fact, it was specific under the law that a child who behaved the way that the boy in Luke 15 behaved, when he did come home, all the, the elders the, of each household, every, every head of the household was, was to come from their house and gather around the rebellious child and pick up stones and stone the child to death as an example to the other children in the community. And I know your psyche was damaged because dad whooped you a couple times. They are supposed to stone them. And so when it says that the father, think about this, fell on his neck. Certainly he was expressing his love for his son, but here's what else he was saying. He said to every other householder, every other head of household who was standing there with rocks in their hands, ready to pelt that boy to death, he said, don't you touch him. That's my son. And I know what he's done, and I know where he's been, and I smell him just like you smell him. I see the life that he's lived. I've heard the reports. I've heard the stories. I've heard your gossip. I know what you said about him. And you can look down on him all you want to, but that's my boy, and I still love him. No matter what he's done, he'll always be my son. I'm telling you, God's grace is persistent. It doesn't matter where you've gone, where you've been, what you've done, how far you've gone, or how badly you think you've wrecked and made a mess of yourself. God is waiting with open arms to welcome you home today. His grace is persistent. His grace is persistent. I'd love to tell you, I don't have time, but I'd love to tell you how I walked away from God in anger and bitterness and frustration. You said, man, what, like 25 years ago? No more like eight years ago. I walked away. I was mad at church people. In fact, I hated y'all. Not y'all, but (laughs) (laughs) y'all. I did, I got to the point I hated church people. I thought, oddly enough, some of you are here this morning, this is going to sound crazy, probably, maybe, some of you are here this morning, I thought about some of you that I grew up with. I walked out this morning, saw one of my best friends, I had to go back to my office and cry and wipe my tears and then come back out, because it blesses my heart just to have you here. But during that season, I had, I had gotten such a belly full of dealing with church folks, and y'all know who I'm talking about. If you ever think I'm a little too harsh toward church people, I got it honestly, bless you i got i got there honestly i did it's not right i'm not i'm not excusing my attitude or my behavior but i just got to a point i, I, I just freaking couldn't stand in church people because here's what i thought i thought to myself you know what i've got i've got old buddies that i haven't seen in 20 years that if i needed to go kick some guy's teeth in i could call them up and they'd be right there Right or die baby I did, I thought that, and it bothered me because I thought, you know what? Many of them don't even know the Lord. And some of you are offended that I said kick somebody's teeth, and I'm not really going to do it. It's just something I fantasize about sometimes. <laughs> and at the time there were a couple people I wanted to. And I thought, you know, there 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 are our guys, friends that I that I've known in my lifetime as a child, that don't go to church. They wouldn't darken the door of every church that I knew at the time. That if I called them in in a moment of despair and I needed somebody to be there, they'd drop everything and be there for me. But I couldn't think of one church person that would do it. And it ate me up, I'm telling you. I obsessed over that. It bothered me because I thought these people are supposed to love Jesus, (laughs) right? Right? And I got bitter, and I'm not going to tell that whole story, but I got bitter and I got angry and I walked away from God. And quite frankly, I thought to myself, because I'd heard so much preaching on the judgment of God, you walk away, boy, God's going to snatch a knot in your tail, boy, God will rain fire down on you. I'd heard sermons about if people walked away from God, boy, he's going to kill you, kids, you're going to lose your house, you're going to lose your family. All these horrific illustrations I'd heard about the, the, just the judgment of this mean yet loving God. And so when I walked away, I was waiting on the hammer to fall. I kept thinking, all right, here we go. Here's how how bitter my heart was. I kept saying things like, all right, let's do it. What do you got? Bring it. I was in a bad way, boy. Mental breakdown, emotional breakdown, had given up. I walked away from God expecting God's judgment, genuinely expecting God's judgment, but was so mad at the time, I didn't care. And just when I thought that God's judgment was going to fall on my life, when I, when I thought that God was just going to wreck me, I found that His love is what overcame me. Because you know what I found when I sought His judgment? I found silence. He didn't say a word. He waited patiently. And when I literally was sitting in the midst of wreckage. Some of y'all know the story. I was sitting in my garage one night. I tore my four-wheeler apart, even though I, I'm the last, I'm the furthest thing from a mechanic you'll ever find. But it seemed like a good idea at the time. Y'all been there, right? Just tear this thing apart. Tore it all apart. All the pieces of my four-wheeler lay in, in the garage around me. I turned some, some Christian music on just to keep the demons at, in my head at bay, right? I didn't need Metallica right then, I can tell you that. I turned on 99.1 just to, just to calm my mind. And the song, Tell Your Heart to Beat Again, came on. I'd never heard it before. And as I sat there in, in the rubble and the ruin, I looked around and I thought, man, this, this freaking garage floor looks like my life right now. I'm a wreck. I'm broken. I don't know how to put these pieces back together. I've made a mess out of things. It was my fault. I'm not even blaming the people that hurt me. It was my fault. I'm the one that got hurt. I'm the one that got offended. I'm the one that got bitter. And I was sitting there looking at what I had done. And I hear these words say, shattered, like you've never been before, the life you knew in a thousand pieces on the floor. When words fall short in times like these and this world drives you to its knees, you think you're never going to get back to the you that used to be. I thought, that's who I am, some kind of preacher, some kind of pastor. I'd been in the ministry almost 14 years at the time. And I thought, look at you now look at who you've turned into. You preached to others. You told others about God's grace and God's mercy, and look at you now. And in that moment, God began to breathe life back into me. And when I thought I had gone so far that he'd never want to have anything to do with me, God welcomed me back with open arms. And I'm just telling you that story to tell you he'll receive you too if you'll come to him. I am so much out of time, so out of time. But, but, but can I say this to you this morning? I don't have time to preach it. Let me just say it. Y'all come on. Grace is a seed that should be planted. God never gave you grace to store it up in a barn somewhere. God has given you grace. If you're here today and you have experienced the grace of God, God has given you grace so that you can give grace to other people. I think about this. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse number 24, believe it or not, I have a story that goes with this verse too, but I don't have time to tell it. But in John chapter 12, verse number 24, Jesus said, except a corn of wheat, fall into the ground and die. It abides alone. It remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. You know what that means? It means that God has invested grace in you so that you can invest grace in and other people. Our lives ought to be defined by God's grace. When people think about you, when people, and I'm talking to those who, who are Christians this morning, those of you who are saved that know Christ, when people think about you, they, they, the one thing they ought to think about is the fact that, that the grace of God has changed you. <laughs> that they experience a level of kindness that, that flows through you that, they, that they're not used to in the world around them. This is what the Bible means when it talks about we are different. As, as Christian people, we're supposed to be different. When he says, come out from among them and be separate, God's saying to us, it's not about your, your, the type of clothes you wear, whether you have tattoos or piercings or not. It's not what that means. It means that people ought to experience something different in your presence. That they, they ought to see a love on display in your life that, that is foreign to, to our natural selves. That God's grace is so flowing through you that just being in your presence, they experience a kindness. Wouldn't this transform our community? If Christian people just started being nice, it'd be great, wouldn't it? If if I don't know why I've been stuck on this lately, but but if, if waiters and waitresses at our local restaurants did not dread working Sundays, if you've ever waited tables, I never have, so this isn't coming from some personal <laughs> experience. But I've heard it a million times. If you've ever waited tables, Sundays are generally the worst days because those church people come in and they don't want a tip and they want to be waited on like kings and queens. Get to my cheese tip for me. <coughs> and we treat people so poorly, and then, and, then we, and then we wonder why our church houses are empty. Now, obviously, this one ain't. And I'll tell you why. I'm serious. I said this last Sunday. Here's what I think. People say, what's the, what's the secret? I think the secret is no secret. <laughs> I, I, I think it's just that, that some of you guys are getting it. I got it because I had to be wrecked to figure it out. God had to let me go through hell and fall flat on my face. And I listen, I just learned real quick, I'd rather be humble than humbled. Because I've been humbled. And God had to humble me and God had to break me. And through that experience, I think some of you, those people, amen? We're getting that on a t-shirt. It's coming, baby. We are those people. Some of you... You're getting it. You're getting it. You're understanding that that, that Christianity is not churchianity. It's not punching a, a list of do's and don'ts. It's not about the way you look outwardly. It's not about piercings or tattoos or anything else. It's about understanding the mercy and the love and the grace of God and what we've received we're supposed to freely give. Grace is a seed that has to be planted or it will die. You have to give what you've received. Be not deceived. God is not mocked whatsoever a man sows that will he also reap you want it, you want judgment be judgmental you want criticism be critical you want gossip gossip you want grace me too bud then you got to give grace you want grace you got to give grace listen to me if you're here today and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ we exist for you We exist for you. There's more to us than that, but we are here fundamentally because we want to see you come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, and we want you to be in heaven with us someday. And so if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can do that today. Let's stand. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for the grace we've received in Christ. We pray that you'd bless this time as we've gathered. What an exciting moment that this is. We give you all the glory, all the praise, all the honor. We want to resound our song of worship to you. So, Father, please continue to move, continue to bless, and we'll give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor in Jesus' name.